if you're joining us for the first time, our church is currently going through a series on Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And uh, if you're not familiar with this letter, the big theme of it is that the gospel of Jesus Christ unites a diverse people into a new family. And this morning, we're going to be reading from chapter 2 of this letter. So, um, Joel, if you would mind coming on up and reading for us. Thank you. Reading from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians from chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Five hundred and fifteen years ago, in Wittenberg, Germany, there lived a young monk named Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther lived in this um, Augustinian monastery, and you know what? He was driving his abbot absolutely crazy. Luther was spending hours a day, every day of the week, in the confessional booth, confessing all his sins to the abbot. On one occasion, Martin Luther spent six hours in the confessional booth. Six hours. And the minute that he would walk out of that booth, He'd get a few paces away, he'd remember something else he'd done, or thought, or said, and he'd turn around and he'd go back into that booth. Martin Luther had a conscience that was tormented. He even admitted that he believed if he forgot a single word in the Latin mass, it was akin to murdering his parents, okay? He had a tormented conscience. And he was afraid that if he forgot to confess a single sin, do you know what God was going to do? Throw him in hell forever. Now, we might be tempted to kind of roll our eyes and be like, oh, Martin Luther, you need to lighten up, bro. <laughs> like, you take yourself way too seriously. But you know what? Martin Luther grew up in a religious society that actually fostered that kind of thinking. Ever since he was a young boy, he was taught, if you're good... If you stay out of trouble, you'll be acceptable before God. But if you fall into sin, you better be careful. You're liable to be thrown in hell forever. There was even a popular saying when Martin Luther grew up, and it was this. When a coin in the church coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Can you imagine if Stephen said that before we just took up the offering? Okay. (laughs) The amount of pressure that that put on people. Because if you were generous towards the church, that's going to positively impact all your loved ones in eternity. But if you can't afford to be generous or or you're intentionally miserly, you're damning them to an eternity without God. That is so much pressure to live under. And so maybe it's 
not so strange that Martin Luther felt tormented. Now, we're quite a bit removed from that culture, right? We're 500 years later. Our society, broadly speaking, isn't ruled by the church in the way that it was back then. But are we really so different? Is our society more gracious? Are people less afraid to put a toe out of line? Do you feel any less pressure to perform? Do we no longer connect our works to our worth? You know, there was a fantastic film that came out uh, last year, Disney's Encanto, okay? If you haven't seen Encanto, go watch it today. <laughs> it's very good. You know, in fact, in, in 2022, you know how Spotify does like your yearly wrap-up, your top 10 songs? All 10 of my top 10 songs were from Encanto. All 10. It's, it's a really good movie. And in Encanto, it explores the connection between our performance and our identity, our works and our worth in a really creative way. We're introduced to a number of interesting characters. Uh, we meet Louisa. Louisa is a young woman who's been gifted with incredible physical strength. And she uses her physical strength to bless and support her community. You know, a farmer has his donkeys escape, and Louisa goes and picks them up and carries them home. Or someone needs a piano move from one level of the house to the other, and there's Louisa. But in a moment of vulnerability, Louisa confesses to her sister Mirabelle that she feels under immense pressure to always be strong. And she also confesses that there was a moment not too long ago when she felt weak. And that was terrifying because she doesn't know who she is if she's not the strong one. One of the songs we love, Louisa sings, pressure like a drip, drip, drip that'll never stop. Pressure that'll tip, tip, tip till you just go pop. Give it to your sister. Your sister's older. Give her all the heavy things we can't shoulder. Who am I if I can't carry it all, if I falter? We also meet Isabella. Isabella is given the gift of beauty. She spreads beauty and charm wherever she goes, but she confesses to her sister Mirabelle that she feels imprisoned by this need to be perfect, to never have a hair out of place. She even admits that she was willing to marry someone she didn't even love, just to maintain that image and to keep the rest of the family happy, avoid causing any waves. Now, I don't know everyone's story in the room this morning, but I know this. You know what it feels like to be Martin Luther, to be Louisa, to be Isabella, because you know what it feels like to run on a performance treadmill. There are voices in our culture, there are internal narratives in our own mind, there's even voices we project onto God that say, your worth is dictated by your works, and you're nobody if you're not X, Y, or Z. We know what it is to run on a performance treadmill. You know, perhaps you've heard the voice of our culture before saying, unless you look a certain way, you're not beautiful, and if you're not beautiful, you're nothing. Six years ago, during the Super Bowl halftime show, I, I don't know what it is, I, I talk about halftime shows like 40% of the time when I'm preaching, but <laughs> six years ago, there's a Super Bowl halftime show where Lady Gaga performed, and it was one of those, you know, dazzling, jaw-dropping performances, and at the end of the performance, what happened? 
The trolls got on Twitter and said, oh, gross, Lady Gaga's got a muffin top. She should really cover up. Right? Our society screams for this airbrushed perfection. And have you ever been crushed by the weight of that? You know, apart from eating healthy and exercising just to be healthy and fit, you, you feel this need to drive for a standard of beauty that always seems unattainable. Or perhaps, parents, maybe I'll talk to you for a moment. Parents, have you ever heard that internal narrative that compares you to other parents and always says, no matter how hard you try, you will never be that good? Parents, have you ever been on one of those mom blogs? Have you ever been on a mom blog that left you feeling like garbage? I know I have. <laughs> this mom has a 400-square-foot apartment, but somehow she made a reading nook for her children. And her children spend hours a day in that nook, clean, learning things from books. This mom, <laughs> this mom has a, a box on her windowsill that she grows carrots in, and she, she harvests those carrots and grinds them up to make baby food that's organic. This mom works a full-time job, and somehow she's figured out the credit card wizardry so she can take her family to Iceland for free. And her kids read books on the plane, and they're silent. <laughs> Moms or dads, yeah, you've been there. You've been there. And you log off that mom site, you look at your house, and you feel like garbage, right? Because who am I if I'm not a super dad, super mom? Employees, you ever feel that pressure to fit in at the workplace? You ever feel that pressure to publicly display that you're on board with whatever your company's into at that moment? You've got to wear the pin. You've got to take the knee. You've got to participate with full enthusiasm in the workshop. Because if you don't, you're not a good person. And you won't be accepted in your company. You know, I worked for a long time with Power to Change students, one of the Christian uh, university ministries, and I heard a lot of different school chants over the years, okay? I heard the Gaelic cheer that they do at Queens. Very cool. Uh, I went to Western. You know, we did the Western cheer. The most on-the-nose cheer I've ever heard is from the University of Toronto. Any students from U of T here? Any st okay, some? Have you heard this cheer? 4.0, 4.0, I've heard the cheer, right? Because U of T, who are you if you're not the smartest? And secretly you hope your other classmates don't do well so that the bell curve lifts you even higher. I know how it is, U of T. We connect our identity with our performance all the time. And should we therefore be surprised, Christians, when this seeps into our spiritual life? Someone asks you how your walk with God is going, and what do you do? Your head drops. You shake your head, you say, I can't remember the last time I had a good, quiet time. Or maybe it's Thursday night, 1 a.m., you just logged off a particular website, and you're thinking, maybe God's done with me. Because we define our worth by our works, and we're found wanting. The performance treadmill leads only one of two places, ladies and gentlemen. It leads you to pride or despair. More often than not, it leads to despair. But the good news of Ephesians 2, the text that was just read for us this morning, the good news of Ephesians 2 is this. God has torpedoed 
the performance treadmill. God has silenced those voices that say, you're nothing unless you're beautiful. You're nothing unless your house is clean. You're nothing unless you're popular or successful. Because God has given you an identity. An identity that puts all those other identities to pale in comparison. What is this identity? Well, in verse 10, you are God's handiwork. You are God's workmanship. Now, the word workmanship, it sort of contains the idea of you are God's crowning artistic achievement. And that's why a lot of other English translations use the word masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. In the NLT, verse 10, you are God's masterpiece made anew in Christ Jesus. Now, what comes to your mind when you hear the word masterpiece, artistic masterpiece? One of the things that comes to my mind is Michelangelo's statue of David. And as I was preparing for the sermon, I did a little bit of research into the story behind the statue of David. I'd love to share it with you. In 1410, the cathedral in Florence decided that they wanted to adorn and beautify their cathedral by putting various statues of Old Testament figures on the roof. And so, they bought an enormous piece of marble, over 17 feet tall, weighing in at over 12,000 pounds. And they said, we want a statue of David carved out of this marble. And they hired one of the greatest sculptors of the time. And he came, and he looked at the marble, and he studied the marble. He examined it from every angle. And he came back to the committee. He said, I can't do anything with this. It's full of imperfections. It is useless for artistic work, and he abandoned the project. So some time passed, and they hired another artist, one of the greatest sculptors, uh, sculptors of their time. And he came, and he looked at it, and he said, all right, well, I'll give it a try. So he started work. He started chiseling, making cracks, taking pieces out. But after a period of time, he came to the committee, and he said, it can't be done. The marble is too imperfect. The project is too large in scope. It's unwieldy. And so for 35 years, this 17-foot, 12,000-pound slab of marble sat in the yard outside the cathedral, being exposed to the rain, the sun, the heat, the wind, and the cold. And in 1503, the committee tried for a third time. They approached a 26-year-old artist named Michelangelo. Michelangelo looked at the marble slab. He, you know, the slab had been outside all this time. It had been damaged by a previous guy trying to work on it. It was full of imperfections. But Michelangelo had a vision to create a masterpiece. And he spent three years of his life bringing forth a masterpiece out of that rejected piece of marble. Now, remember, this statue was supposed to go up on the roof of the cathedral, and yet, Michelangelo had attention to every detail, even the veins in the hand of David. And by the time he finished, his work has been recognized by most artistic scholars as one of the greatest, most perfect sculptures ever made. And it wasn't put on the roof of the cathedral. It was deemed as too beautiful. They put it in their town square. There it stood for 300 years, and people would travel from all over Europe to gaze upon the masterpiece of Michelangelo. 
You are God's masterpiece. You are God's statue of David. But the Apostle Paul tells us that God did not start with a 12,000-pound, 17-foot piece of twice-rejected marble. He started with something much, much worse. Pastor Tarek preached last week from Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, just before what was read for us this morning. God started. His raw materials were you dead in your sins. It was you enslaved to your flesh, enslaved to the world, enslaved to the devil. He started with you under the wrath and condemnation of God. And he forged a masterpiece. Now, if, I, if, if we could go back in time and look at the slab of marble before Michelangelo got his hands on it, and we'd said, what is this? What, what is this that we're looking at? All of us would have said, it's a slab of marble. It's just a, a rock, you know? But if we looked again after Michelangelo had got his hands on that marble, we'd say, it's a masterpiece. It had a new identity. It had been created anew. Likewise, when the Apostle Paul looks at us, before God got his hands on our life, he says, I see death, I see enslavement, I see condemnation. And then Paul looks again after the master artist gets his hands on us. And Paul says, I see life. I see a masterpiece. Now, when Michelangelo brought that difference about, he brought that change of identity, he did it with a hammer, with a chisel, with brushes. What about God? What did he use as his tools? Well, he united us to Christ. Look with me at verses 4 to 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. And seated us up with him, uh, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Before we were dead, now we've been made alive. Before we were enslaved, and now we've been raised up in Christ. And before we were condemned, now we have been enthroned with Christ. How did God do all this? He did it by uniting us to Jesus Christ. Now, union with Christ isn't something necessarily we talk a lot about, and I, I suspect it's because it's a very mysterious concept. It can be a bit hard to get our hands on exactly. But biblically speaking, it is a vital theological topic, union with Christ. Because at our deepest core, a Christian isn't someone who follows Jesus. A Christian isn't someone who likes Jesus. A Christian is someone who has been united to Jesus Christ. That's how God made us a masterpiece, by uniting us to Jesus Christ. And the Bible gives us a couple pictures to help us understand what union with Christ is. In the, the book that we're currently studying, in the book of Ephesians, if you go to the end, uh, near the end, chapter 5, Paul talks about the marriage between a husband and a wife as an image of our union with Christ. Right? In a marriage, two become one. In a marriage, all the, the triumphs and the burdens of one spouse become the triumphs and the burdens of the other spouse. And so Paul is telling us that when we've been united to Christ, our death 
our enslavement, our condemnation have become Christ's. And his life, his ascension, his reign have become ours. God's made us a masterpiece by uniting us to Christ. Another image that the New Testament uses, again, uh, in in Ephesians 5, uh, the Apostle Paul refers to us as being the body of Christ. And so you can do this subtly. You don't have to be flashy. But if you touch your hands, if you touch your hands right now, your hands are a part of your body. And biblically speaking, just as much as your hand is a part of your body, so too you are a part of Jesus Christ. The Bible so closely identifies Jesus with his church that in the New Testament, when the the author of this letter, Ephesians, before his conversion, he was persecuting the church. And Jesus appears to him, to Saul, in a vision. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? No. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so who was it that Saul was persecuting? Was he persecuting the church or was he persecuting Jesus Christ? Biblically speaking, the answer is yes to both. Because they're united. And so Christians, when you're reading the stories of Jesus in the Gospels and you read about his resurrection, in a sense you're reading your own story as well. Because in your union with him, you've been raised in him. When you read about Jesus' ascension into heaven, you've ascended in him. And when you're reading about Jesus' enthronement at the right hand of the Father, you've been enthroned with him. His story is your story. And so the next time that you hear those narratives in culture or in your own mind saying, you're nothing unless you're beautiful, you're nothing unless you're successful, you're nothing unless your house is clean or you're intelligent, you need to know this. You are God's masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. You are his Mona Lisa. You're his Eiffel Tower. You are his Statue of David. You're his Fifth Symphony. You are his Hamlet. And you have nothing to prove to this world. I want you to do something weird, okay? I want you to turn to someone near you and say, you are God's masterpiece. Do it, okay? Say it. You are God's masterpiece. If no one turned to you, If no one turned to you, hear this from me. You are God's masterpiece, okay? And if you're here and you're a Christian this week, thank you, yes. (laughs) Wonderful. If you're here this week and you're a Christian and you walk past a mirror at your house, I want you to do this at least once. Look in that mirror and say, you are God's masterpiece. It's weird, but yeah, I I do that every day. (laughs) Because you know what? The culture and your internal narrative are screaming the opposite. And we need that truth to sink down deep into our bones. So the next time that we think, I'm nothing unless I'm X, Y, or Z, we can remember, I've been made anew. I haven't been made better. I've been made new in Christ. And if you're here today and you're investigating the Christian faith, you're exploring Christianity, here's what I want to tell you. When God looks at you, he has a vision of a masterpiece that he would love to make out of your life. Would you come under his hammer, his chisel, his brush? Would you continue to explore Jesus Christ? 
the one to whom he would unite you to make you into that masterpiece. Let's continue on. So how is it that God united us to Christ and made us into a masterpiece? Look with me. Uh, Paul says this twice, just in case you missed it. Verse 5 and verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For by grace you've been saved through faith. When Michelangelo brought forth the statue of David from that hunk of marble, do you know what David did? Nothing. He just laid there and was shaped by the hands of the master. David didn't, you know, help Michelangelo out by sort of shaking his hand free from the marble. David didn't help out by being a better piece of marble to use. He didn't do anything. He's a masterpiece simply because a master brought him forth. Likewise, by grace, you've been saved through faith. You weren't made a masterpiece because you were a better piece of marble. You weren't made a masterpiece because you somehow helped God out by cleaning yourself up and using, you know, dusting yourself off. You're a masterpiece because God is a master artist. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. Grace is one of those words we toss around um, if you've been in the church a while. And I find words that we toss around a lot, they can become over-familiar. And we almost kind of forget what they mean. I mean, goodness, goodness gracious, our church is named Grace Toronto, right? Grace, what does it mean? In the year 949 in China, Emperor Tsai Su ascended the throne, ushering in the Song Dynasty. Now, China back then in the Middle Ages, it wasn't a united nation as it is now. It was a series of smaller kingdoms that were often warring with one another. And the kingdom of the emperor overthrew the kingdom of Qian Shu, this smaller kingdom. He, he conquered them in battle. And now Qian Shu was supposed to be sort of a vassal ruler ruling under the emperor. But Qian Shu continued to plot murder against the emperor. He wasn't satisfied being defeated. He plotted murder against him. And one day, the emperor invited Qian Shu to come to the imperial palace. And when Qian Shu arrived, all of the emperor's associates believed that he would be arrested on the spot and executed for his treason. But that's not what happened. The emperor honored Qian Shu in the presence of the imperial court. And at the end of their time together, the emperor gave him a package and said, open this on your journey home. And as Qian Shu departed from the imperial city, he opened that package and found inside all of the letters, all of the documents that proved his conspiracy of murder. And Qian Shu realized that the emperor knew everything about his plotting, but that he had spared his life and honored him nonetheless. And as you can imagine, Qian Shu became one of the emperor's most loyal subjects from that day forward. Justice would have been if the emperor had executed Qian Shu on the spot for treachery. Mercy might have been the emperor allowing him to live in exile or in prison. But grace, grace was honoring him 
in the presence of his court. And so for those of you who have become God's masterpiece, it's by grace. You were dead in your sins. You were enslaved to your flesh, to this world, and the devil. You were under God's wrath and condemnation. But he didn't give you justice. He didn't give you mercy. Rather, his son died for you so that you might come alive, so that you might be raised and seated and enthroned with him. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. Now, the trouble is in the church, many of us acknowledge we've been saved by grace, but then we try to live by works, right? We have this new identity, but we've got to maintain it by working really hard. I want you to imagine with me a, a, a graph. This is not as interesting of an illustration, but hopefully it's helpful. I want you to imagine a graph, okay? So the y-axis, I believe that's up and down. Um, I'm a political science major. <laughs> I believe y is up and down. That's going to represent your holiness, your righteousness. And the x-axis that runs horizontally, that's depicting time, okay? So let's say you're a 20-year-old who begins to follow Christ. What happens to you at that moment, biblically speaking, is you are united to Christ, okay? At that very moment, his righteousness becomes your righteousness. Your death becomes his. And you are instantly made absolutely righteous and holy because of Jesus Christ. 100%. You go from zero to 100%, from death to life. And it stays that way the rest of your days. Because when God looks at you, he sees Jesus Christ. Now, that is not our day-to-day -day experience, right? Our day-to-day -day experience is very up and down. There's certain days that we find it easier or more challenging to resist sin. Certain periods of our life feel more spiritually vibrant or, or spiritually dry. We have an up and down experience. Now, when we're saved by grace, but we try to live by works, we spend all of our time and energy focusing on the bottom line, the one that moves up and down. And what that does is, as we talked before about the performance treadmill, it either leaves you feeling proud or in despair. You might think, man, I'm doing well in my walk with the Lord. <laughs> i am uh, memorized some of the Bible recently. I've been on a missions trip, not struggling with sin like I used to. God must be very happy with me indeed. Or conversely, you might hang your head, as we talked about at the introduction, and think, Am I even a Christian? But friends, the good news is this. It's not that you're saved by grace and then you live by works. You are saved by grace and you live by grace. God looks at the top line. And when he looks at you, he has a smile on his face because he says, you, my son, my daughter, are a masterpiece in Jesus Christ. And so we need to stop focusing so much attention on the bottom line. We need to start looking more at that top line and allow that to transform our identity. So we've talked about our, our new identity, that we've been made a masterpiece in Christ. We talked about how God has done that. He has, he has united us to Christ by grace. And now I'd like to conclude by talking about what flows out of this new identity. What's the result of that? Look with me at verse 7. In the coming ages, he might show the insurpassable riches of his grace 
in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God has made you a masterpiece so that you might be part of an eternal art exhibit displaying his grace, his love, his kindness, and his mercy to the entire cosmos. There's a famous British pastor and theologian named John Stott. And John Stott tells the story of when he was a a seminarian at Ridley College in Cambridge. And while he was a student there, the principal of Ridley retired. And so the school commissioned that a portrait would be done depicting the principal. And when the portrait was unveiled, the principal paid this compliment to the artist. He said, years from now, when someone looks at this painting, they will not ask, who's that principal? Rather, they will ask, who did that painting? In verse 7, the Apostle Paul is telling us that you have been made God's masterpiece so that for all eternity, creation itself might gaze upon us and say, what an artist to make that masterpiece. You've been made a masterpiece to point towards the great artist. And secondly, what flows from this new identity as being God's masterpiece? We go back to verse 10. Created in Christ Jesus to do the good works he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Aha, so at last we get back to works. But we're going to see that, that this text has flipped the relationship between our works and our worth, our performance and our identity. It's flipped it on its head. It's no longer perform so that you can be acceptable. Rather, the Apostle Paul is telling us, you have been accepted. You've been made anew. You are loved by God. You are his masterpiece. And let that truth transform your heart so that good works flow out of you. It's a completely different relationship with our works. Now, we might ask the question, well, what does Paul mean by good works? Is he essentially saying, okay, you've been made alive, you've been raised with Christ, you're God's masterpiece, now, you know, pat on the head, be a good boy. Um, Keep your nose clean, don't be naughty, right? Do good works. Well, I think there's a sense that a Christian's life should be marked by uh, increasing holiness. I I think there's a sense that that's true. But I think that Paul's vision and God's vision is much bigger than just that. Remember, we've been united with Christ. We've been united to his life. We're united to his reign. And therefore, we're united to his works. Our works should be his works in this world. And so God is inviting us to be creators. He's inviting us to bring forth beauty in this world, to be entrepreneurial, to take risks, to take steps of faith to improve the world around us. And what does that look like for each of us as individuals? Well, you know, I'm sure that we could all think of some good works that, you know, that any of us could take part in. But I'm also sure that there's probably some good works that are unique to you. And I'd love for you to think about what those could be this week. What what are the communities God has placed you in? What's the family he's placed you in? What's the part of Toronto he's placed you in? What are the abilities he's given to you, the unique giftings that you have that make you different from others? What are the unique opportunities that he's given you? 
So I want to invite you to think and pray and even talk with uh, friends, family, or small group. What could be some of the good works he's prepared beforehand for me to walk in? When Martin Luther learned this beautiful truth that it's not perform and be accepted, but rather it's you are accepted, let that transform you, it changed his relationship with God completely. And Luther said, the next time the devil comes to you and throws your sins in your, faith and says, in, in your face and says, you deserve to go to hell, you can reply to him, that's true, but I've been united with Christ. His righteousness is mine, and where he is, I will be also. God has recreated you as a masterpiece, and he invites you and commissions you to be a co-creator with him. Let that transform you from the inside out. Amen. We have a little bit of time now before um, we conclude the service for an interaction, um, some interaction. So if there are any questions that were texted in, I might have a chance to do one or two of them. And if I don't get to your question, please, uh, if, if you would like me to respond, please email it to me at graham at gracetoronto.ca. Thanks, Graham, for your sermon. Um, we do have two questions. Let's do and them I both. Think they're, yeah, they're very good questions. So here's the first one. At what point are we God's masterpiece? Was it when God created Adam, when God created each of us, when we were born, when we were saved? Uh, was it the time when we were dead in our trespasses and then we were, and then we were made alive, we were saved? What, at what point were we, or did we become God's masterpiece? Good question. Um, I, it's, it, I think it's not um, unexpected that you would think of Adam and Eve, right? The, the first parents of humanity. Um, because obviously that was an act of creation that God did with them. However, we know that they didn't stay in that state of innocence, but they did rebel against God, just like Chan Shu in the story that I shared. And yet God extended his grace to humanity um, and has united us with Christ and made us new creations. So, so in a sense, this text has new creation, so it doesn't surprise me that you'd think back of the original creation. Um, the short answer, I would say, is that we are God's masterpieces when we've been united to Jesus Christ. And um, if you want to go deeper into exactly when that happens or what it looks like, I invite you to find Howard McPhee and ask him that. <laughs> but you are a masterpiece when you are united to Jesus Christ, who is the masterpiece. Thank you. And our second question is this. What do you say to those who may use, by grace you've been saved, to justify their continual acts of sin? Mm. Good question. Yeah. Thank you for raising that one. Um, there's a, an excellent passage in Romans 7, I believe. Um, guys, uh, Stephen, you've done Licensure. Is it Romans 7 that, um, uh, you know... <laughs> is it Romans 7, Stephen? <laughs> Six. Six. Thank you. Read Romans 6 for a more thorough explanation of this question. So um, read Romans 6. But, but basically what Paul is saying, if, if you use grace as an excuse to go and sin more, you haven't understood grace. You haven't understood your new identity. And so I think Romans 6 would be a great, a great place for you to start understanding. It's true by grace you've been saved. It's true that 
sinning doesn't take that away. But if you're throwing that in God's face, are you really in that moment experiencing the love of God that should be transforming your heart? You know, in the same way you could say, well, you know, I'm, I'm married to my spouse, so I don't have to take her on dates anymore. I don't have to treat her with kindness. I can do whatever I want because we're in a covenanted marriage. Do you really understand marriage if that's the way you're living? So take a look at Romans 6. Um, I will invite you to rise now as the uh, worship team comes back. We'll have our song of response. And if you'd like to email me a follow-up question, graham at gracetoronto.ca.